direct elections. Mr Prigozhin said this interference was continuing. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 8th of November. A warm welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the morning's business and finance headlines. The UN's Climate Change Summit has opened in Egypt with a new UN report saying the past eight years were on track to be the warmest on record. More than 120 world leaders will attend the COP27 summit in the Red Sea resort of Sharm el-Sheikh which will kick off two weeks of negotiations between countries on climate action. On the agenda for the first time is the contentious issue of loss and damage, whereby wealthy countries fund poor countries suffering the consequences of climate change, a move that China supports. China's exports unexpectedly declined in October, badly missing expectations for growth as a global economic slowdown and domestic COVID-19 curbs hits the country's trade balance. China's exports fell by 0.3% from a year ago. That's down from 5.7% in September and missing economists' forecasts for a 4.3% increase. It's the first fall in exports since May 2020 and imports declined for the first time since August 2020. Imports fell by 0.7% in US dollar terms, down from 0.3% growth in September, also missing expectations for growth of 0.1%. China's state-owned financial newspaper, the Securities Times, yesterday criticised the unverified reports and rumours about the imminent relaxation of China's strict zero Covid rules that have moved markets recently. It urged regulatory action and legal measures to punish the behaviour of disrupting the markets with false information. The rumours of a reopening sent Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index surging by 8.7% last week, the biggest week- weekly jump since 2011. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Nick Marrow at the Economist Intelligence Unit and Mark Franklin from Manulife Investment Management. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. U.S. stocks rallied for a second straight day Monday, ahead of inflation data on Thursday and the U.S. midterm elections. The S&P 500 gained 1% to 3,807. The Dow closed 424 points higher, or 1.3%, at 32,827. The Nasdaq Composite rose 0.9% to 10,565 after trading between gains and losses earlier in the session. On Monday, Goldman Sachs said S&P 500 companies will generate no earnings growth next year. It cut its earnings per share forecasts for 2023 from 3% to zero. In Europe, the Stock 600 index rose a third of a percent and London's FTSE 100 fell half a percent. Hong Kong investors shook off the comments on Saturday from the National Administration of Disease Control and Prevention saying that China will hold fast to dynamic zero COVID and continue to improve control measures to adapt to changes in the virus. 
The Hang Seng Monday built on last week's 8.7% rally after initially opening lower. By the end of the day, it was up 434, 435 points, or 2.7%, at 16,596. The tech index jumped 4.1%. Hong Kong exchanges and clearing rose 5.4% to the highest level since the 13th of October after Fang Jinghai, vice chairman of the CSRC, said China will further expand the Stock Connect scheme. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite added 0.2% to end the day at 3,078. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 0.7% lower at $97.92 a barrel. Not much movement in gold, which is trading at $1,675 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose six basis points to 4.22%. And the dollar sell-off continued on those reopening rumours in China. The US dollar index fell 0.6% to a one-month low. And that helped put the euro back above parity with the dollar. The Japanese yen is flat at 146.61. Sterling outperformed, climbing 1.2% to $1.15 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 4 cents. The Chinese yuan was softer on the disappointing trade data. Offshore yuan fell over 1% to almost 7.26 before regaining some of the losses to trade this morning at 7.23 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin this morning, down almost 3% at $20,500. Around Asia-Pacific stock markets in Australia, uh, the SX200 is up a third of a percent. Stocks have just opened in Japan. Nikkei 225 has risen 0.7%. Shortly after trading started in South Korea, the Cosby is up about 0.7%. But it does look like uh, we're going to see a loss in the Hang Seng of about 80 points at the open this morning. Time to welcome our guests. We have with us Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning, Nick. Good morning. And also with him in our Queensway studio, Mark Franklin, managing director and senior portfolio manager of multi asset solutions at Manu Life Investment Management Hong Kong. Morning, Nick Mark. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with the trade data. China's exports unexpectedly declined in October, badly missed expectations for a growth for growth. China's exports fell by 0.3% from a year ago. That was down from growth of 5.7% in September. Badly missed economists' forecasts for a 4.3% increase. It's the first fall in exports since May 2020. Imports also declined, falling for the first time since August 2020. Imports fell by 0.7% in US dollar terms. That's down from 0.3% growth in uh, September. On a regional basis, exports to the European Union fell 9%. Exports to the US declined for a third consecutive month, uh, reaching 12.6%. Exports to the Asian countries also decelerated, but they did remain in positive territory at 20.3%. And finally, uh, China's chip imports were down 13.2% from January uh, to October. Uh, Nick, maybe you want to kick off uh, with this quite weak export and import trade data in October. What's behind that? Yeah, well, actually, we've been flagging for quite some time that um, 
by Q4, the trade story would start to lose momentum. Um, and that wasn't just because of kind of the residual impact of like interest rate right, interest rate hikes in, in Western markets, which are going to depress demand. But also there's just a low base, or excuse me, a very high base of comparison compared to last year. Um, so numerically, it was, it was going to be tough to see growth. Um, but overall, I mean, it adds into this narrative of, um, you know, a softening in demand across the board. And that's bad news for China, considering that a lot of the growth that we saw in 2020, 2021, much of 2022 has been from the trade sector um, and, mm. you know, with exports and export-oriented manufacturing, export-oriented investment. Um, and so as kind of those trade headwinds um, kind of darken um, or those the outlook, you know, looks more challenging, um, that's, that's going to give a lot of challenges to policymakers uh, in terms of how to navigate those uh, growth pains heading not just into Q4, but into the early part of 2023 as well. Mark, what are your thoughts? I would agree with Nick. One area of weakness that was very, very obvious was, was exports to the European Union. We know mm. the Eurozone economy is, is going through a very sharp slowdown. Uh, both consumers and businesses have very, very weak sentiment. And as a, an important end market for China, there is ultimately uh, no escape from a sensitivity to that growth slowdown. What, what did hold up particularly well, though, was um, exports to the Asian countries, which sort of maybe suggests maybe that supply chains are shifting to some of those countries, perhaps? Yeah, um, I think it's something that we've been hearing a lot from our clients as well. And I think it ties into the wider situation in China in terms of kind of people waking up to this idea that, um, you know, zero COVID is here to stay. Um, mm. And if you're not, you know, developing contingency plans, you're going to be behind. Um, and so I think if our assumption um, more broadly as part of our Asia desk is that if we do see, see a lot of kind of demand resilience coming out of the West, a lot of that could be shuttled towards Southeast Asia, where economies um, not only enjoy kind of lower input costs, but also are open. Um, and from just a general operational perspective and kind of, the, you know, from a business conditions perspective, um, are just better placed than what's happening in China right now, at least from the supply side. And we're also seeing a decline in imports as well. Um, how much is that down to the, these dynamic uh, zero COVID controls? I think to a large extent, I mean, there's a, there's a real gap between the pace of broad money growth and, and, and narrow money growth in China. So what that means in practice is that financial conditions are quite loose. There's a lot of capital going into the domestic bond market, but it's not finding its way uh, ultimately to building demand for both households and, and corporates. Uh, and that is a function of, let's say, uh, an unclear regulatory outlook for much of the private sector, but also um, disruption to operations from a, from a manufacturing point of view as well. And we've seen that with Apple, haven't we, warned it? So I phone production has been disrupted by these uh, COVID-19 restrictions and it's coming just as uh, we're, we're reaching sort of like the peak holiday shopping season so this is bad news. Yeah, I mean, I think if we look at some of the other indicators as well, not just from kind of the consumer electronics segment, but also things like global shipping rates, um, domestic trucking rates in the U.S., it all points to kind of this uh, unseasonable slowdown in demand. I think a lot of us were expecting a slowdown in consumer electronics demand to finally materialize by um, this quarter. Um, but it seems like, you know, a lot of people in the retail space maybe weren't as, you know, pessimistic about that, um, or at least not as pessimistic about how rapidly things might deteriorate in terms of the demand outlook. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a number of different indicators, the trade data we're seeing out of South Korea, the trade data we're likely going to see today out of Taiwan are probably going to illustrate a lot more of that um, uh, pressure uh, and pain, uh, particularly in the ICT sector. Um, and so that's something that's probably going to carry wider consequences for Asia as well. 
Uh, it's the tech sector in the markets have been really hammered, isn't it, recently? I mean, this data uh, just seems to confirm that there is a real slump in, in demand for, for semiconductors and chips um, globally, and we're seeing that in, in China as well. Yeah, that's right. I think that the semiconductor sector is, is very much a canary in the coal mine because semiconductors are used in so many different industries, some connected, some completely separate. Automotive, consumer electronics, industrial. So it really is a microcosm of the, of the slowdown of the, the wider global economy. Of course, one of the other hits to the tech sector that we've seen in the last few months has been the rise in interest rates and effectively the, the rise in cost mm. of capital. And a lot of those businesses that were, let's say, of questionable merits in terms of their ability to generate free cash flow, that those valuations get severely tested when the cost of capital rises, and that's a double whammy when also the demand side slows down sharply. So is there any sign that the worst is over yet, or is there more to come? We're hearing all sorts of reports about Meta having to do uh, lots of layoffs. We're seeing it from Amazon, from Apple. Um, and if you look at the way the markets are performing over in New York today, providing you bought anything but the tech sector, you're okay. I might defer to Mark on this, um, but uh, only because in the last like 48 hours, I've just been too engrossed with what's happening at Twitter to, to really pay more attention to what's happening beyond that. It is a big distraction, that. isn't it? <laughs> um, I think from uh, the, the one thing we're looking at is, at least in the hardware space, around chips, uh, just because the story there is quite nuanced. Um, so we are seeing kind of this glut in inventories and this kind of softening in demand. But in the auto sector, uh, the shortage still seems relatively pronounced. Um, and the forecast there for car demand generally are, are still pretty um, rosy heading into 2023, and that could lead to some residual demand for chips going into those products. But I mean, just like Mark said, I mean, it's a broader ecosystem that's seeing a slowdown. Um, it's not going to be every industry that kind of feels the pain equally. Yeah, I mean, what, one interesting insight about the, the, the tech sector and the struggles that it's facing is if you look at the, the, the momentum in housing prices in the US, we're seeing a sharp slowdown in month-for-month -month price development. The year-end is still positive, but we might end up closer to, to zero over the coming months. Where it's most pronounced house price weakness are in cities such as San Francisco and Seattle. And lo and behold, those are real centres, ecosystems for the technology sector. So what you're clearly seeing is either people are facing a loss of job security or they're anticipating that and making deferrals in terms of big purchase decisions in their lives. Okay, well, let me ask you about... Uh, the local markets here because it's been a pretty wild week of, of rumours and denials. We had all these stories last week about China relaxing its zero COVID measures. The National Administration of Disease Control and Prevention came out pretty forcefully on Saturday and said they're going to hold fast to dynamic zero COVID. The markets though just don't seem to believe it. They seem to want to hang on to these rumours um, that uh, the China's zero COVID policy is coming to an end. So what, what do you think? Are the signs there that maybe, even if not imminently, um, we're on at the beginning of the end is there for zero COVID? Um, we're a lot more pessimistic than that. Um, and I mean, for a long time, I think we have, I've mentioned this on the program before as well. Um, we're, we've been saying that we would not expect to pivot away from zero COVID until 2023. Um, but uh, there's signs now indicating that, you know, I think there's a story from the Wall Street Journal last night indicating that uh, leaders are talking about finding an exit to the the mm -hmm. pandemic, but um, the timeline is extending to, extending to the end of next year. Um, I think we, we look at kind of three main things when it comes to what's happening here. Uh, the first is kind of around party propaganda and probably party 
propaganda messaging. Um, so, for example, emphasis on terms like people first de development, like renmin zhishang, or like kind of livelihood first development, like shengmin zhishang. These are things that are attached to the president, and they're attached to him in the context of what's happening with zero COVID. Um, and so, until we start to see anything really from the top levels of leadership, we're not expecting to see a, a significant shift away from what's happening. Um, the second thing is that the messaging of the virus in China is still very much around how scary it is. What we saw in Zhengzhou a couple of weeks ago in terms of the exodus of workers was very much not just because conditions at the factories were deteriorating, but also because people were legitimately scared of catching the virus and then dying. Um, and so there needs to be a change in messaging in terms of how to actually live with the virus in a way that you know portrays it as less scary. And the third thing is that the healthcare, healthcare resources in China are very, very strained on a good day. I think estimates are that for a population of 1.4 billion people, there are only 64,000 adult ICU beds. And so if you do see kind of the virus go out of control, we might see a situation like we saw similarly in Hong Kong in, in February, March, whereby the hospital system is not just overwhelmed, but artificially overwhelmed because policies are putting people into hospital. Um, until we start to see kind of those three things start to change and specifically healthcare resources start to become a bit more built up, it's going to be difficult for China to really exit out of this. And any exit plan is probably going to take at least several months on a very optimistic basis as well. But Mark, the market seems to be cherry-picking facts here, doesn't it, in search of almost any sign that zero COVID is going to be relaxed? I mean, ultimately, price action has been positive in the last couple of weeks, but you have to dissect why. And there's been a lack of engagement by both institutional and retail investors. And so by process of elimination, it seems to me that government-oriented um, financial companies are stepping into the market to provide support. Um, mm -hmm. There was a message from the Chinese securities regulator at the financial conference in Hong Kong last week, which effectively said, don't bet against Hong Kong and China. I think that was a tacit message to say, if you're short this market, be careful. Um, and, and I think it's mm -hmm. this time of year as well where we want to create a sense of better outlook. And, and what better way to do that by improving people's you know, financial position via the stock market. So we think that there's some intervention there. But ultimately, um, if institutional investors are very short, so they're going to be forced into short covering. So they might, that this might end ultimately generate institutional buying as well. But for now, the institutional retail buying has been relatively limited so far. So is it, it's the mainland funds buying through Stock Connect. Is that the main reason for this rally? They bought um, about 4.3 billion US dollars of stock last week. That's the biggest inflows into Hong Kong in the past 12 months. Is, is this what we've got to put it down to? I think it's been a principal driver of the rally that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Trouble is, these short, um, these short uh, covering rallies, often in any market, they tend to be short-lived, don't they, once the short uh, covering is out of the way? Do you think it's going to be the same here, or will it be different? Well, it goes back to the point about whether COVID policy is about to, not necessarily pivot, but whether there's going to be a reorientation of thinking. Because oftentimes markets lead that the realities, you know, there's information that's uh, advantaged for certain market participants versus others. So don't rule out a possibility that this rally continues, should it be followed subsequently by some positive development in terms of China's attitude towards COVID policy. In, in, without that, though, you would have to conclude that ultimately these, um, these, these market participants that have been asked to step into the markets will eventually pause and wait mm. to see if there's follow-through from uh, more regular market participants. What should we be looking for then as a, as a real sign that something is changing on the zero COVID policy? Because clearly the authorities aren't going to suddenly come out and abandon it, are they? Because that will be too difficult. There, there will be presumably a lot of ground prepared in advance before we get to the point where maybe there's some sort of pivot. Is there anything in particular we should be looking out for? 
One thing that we've been thinking about is looking at how other markets have transitioned from zero COVID to living with the virus. So, for example, what Taiwan did or Singapore or New Zealand. Um, and it essentially, it was a focus on the severity of cases um, and you know hospitalizations and fatalities rather than just infection numbers. And infection numbers is really the metric that China has been using and looks like it's going to continue to be using in terms of its policies around lockdowns and other shutdowns. If we start to see a shift in terms of... Um, you know, the focus on people actually going into hospital or people, you know, needing to get vaccinated to prevent those outcomes, that would indicate kind of a movement in messaging towards looking at how to live with the virus. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's inevitably where we, need, we need, where we need to go to. That carries a lot of kind of a lot of weight in terms of psychologically preparing the population to, to live with the virus. And critically, I think it has to come from the top because mm -hmm. we are seeing this at the local level in some places, like Zhengzhou, for example, um, primarily in cases when we're starting to see local healthcare resources become overwhelmed. Um, and so there's no choice but people to emphasize that um, they need to you know, prioritize you know, the severe cases versus the less severe cases. Um, but I think for a policy that is as important to the president as this one, um, it has to come from the top. Um, and yeah. So it's going to be some sort of messaging that maybe, um, you know, the, 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 this virus is not as severe um, as first thought, particularly as more people get vaccinated. That will maybe be a signal that there, there's a shift coming. That could be one way. Yeah. Mm. But it, we are seeing local authorities in China. They're sort of reacting differently now, aren't they? But they're not doing the Shanghai-style mass city lockdown anymore. They're sort of doing it uh, district by district. A few schools in a certain uh, certain areas may shut, but they seem to be trying to avoid uh, the mass lockdowns, or at least giving the impression that there's a mass lockdown and then creating all the panic that goes with that. We may also need to look at the political cycle as well. So the People's Congress has just finished. The Politburo nominations have concluded. There are some officials that, that were successful in getting nominated, others that were not. And that can then translate into slightly nuanced approaches at the local level where there's a reduced incentive for some officials to show absolute loyalty to the cause and demonstrate rising numbers of tests, mm -hmm. um, lockdowns and so on. I think fast forward to March of next year when the 13th MPC concludes you will see a re refocusing back towards financial sustainability because budgets and economic forecasts get set. And maybe at that point, certain local provinces or, or district governments may conclude that the current COVID stance policy-wise uh, lacks sustainability from a financial point of view, and they need to reorient themselves away from that given its unsustainability. I mean, this is having an impact not just on stocks, it's having an impact on currencies. We're seeing uh, the yuan. It's, it's been bobbling around quite dramatically the last week, having sort of record uh, daily gains and then big falls. We're seeing it in the commodities markets as well. As a fund manager, you know, you, you invest in a lot of different asset classes. How do you position yourself for something like this that's clearly very unpredictable? I think in this environment where volatility is relatively elevated, where a lot of the developments in markets are headline driven, there are major themes at play here. One of the things that we're being very careful is to make large moves um, without a very strong foundation in thinking. So we're making small moves. Mm. If we think that markets go back in a different direction, we're nimble and we're willing to accept that we need to rethink our positioning. So that's, that's a portfolio construction and a risk management perspective. From an investment perspective, we try and take a step back and say, what do we think of the major macro or secular themes at play over the coming years? So one secular theme might be decoupling 
and disentangling of supply chains, economic relationships, that is generally inflationary. And so what we try to do is, is, is navigate and look through this fog and say, well, what do we think that means for the outlook for fixed income? What does that mean for the outlook for currencies and so on? Particularly if you see, let's say, more persistent inflation at levels that we haven't seen for 30, 40 years. That, that, that's a very different market cycle to what we've enjoyed in the last 10 years. And what about, we've got the midterm elections coming up. The, the polls are going to open in the US in, what, under 24 hours now. Um, it, it seems pretty close, but polls seem to be suggesting the Democrats are going to lose the House. The Senate is on a knife edge. What does this mean in terms of things like, for example, US-China uh, relations? Are we going to see a shift maybe um, in, in, that, uh, in that relationship or maybe even a hardening of it if the, if the Republicans gain control of Congress? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think when you think about U.S. politics, one of the few areas where there's actually consensus between Republicans and Democrats is what back in D.C. people call standing up to China. Um, and so um, even as much as the two parties fight on social issues or climate change, etc., uh, China is kind of the one area where people you still see a lot of bipartisan bipartisan consensus. Um, and if we think about, you know, what happened in, you know, from 2016, 2017 to you know, 2020, 2021, a lot of that was Republican driven. <laughs> the, you know, the trade war was, you know, from Trump. Um, the Biden administration has inherited those policies and they've refined them to make them more legally sound um, and in some ways more damaging because there's coordination with allies and like-minded markets around things like export controls and sanctions. Um, so I don't think we'd see kind of a structural shift um, if we do see kind of a Republican-dominated legislature. Uh, we might see some changes in tactics, um, but the overall trajectory of U.S.-China ties looks pretty bleak. And kind of to what Mark was just saying just right now about, you know, decoupling and supply chains, I think that's a theme that's going to reemerge as kind of COVID concerns kind of start to recede um, over the next couple of years. Um, and it's going to be geopolitics that drives a lot of the day. Does seem to be, Mark, a lot of um, emphasis now in the U.S., particularly in the Biden administration, on protecting national security, um, and particularly when it comes to things like chip um, exports. Is this all starting to have an impact on, on China? It's too early to say what the exact impact will be. And of course, we need to wait for the response from China as well. And there are many, many things that they might consider. But obviously, their focus has been elsewhere for the last few weeks. I mean, going back to US politics, one thing that you might well expect is that in the very short term, should the Republicans succeed in taking back control of Congress, you effectively have a lamed up presidency and markets will take that as a positive in the short term because it basically means less freewheeling spending on the fiscal mm -hmm. side therefore slightly better discipline in terms of bond markets it may also mean at the same time that energy policy and let's say the the, um, the the adversarial relationship that the White House has taken and, and formed with the energy sector, that starts to normalise or people can discount that normalising in the future. So that's positive for, for the energy sector in the US. But I think longer term, maybe there might be a little bit of a sober analysis once the dust settles, which is to say that if you have a, a Republican-controlled Congress and a Democrat-controlled White House, do you start to see leverage being applied to the debt ceiling again? And that creates a new sort of cycle of volatility and uncertainty, which markets don't really need and can afford right now. And presumably then, if, uh, if we have this divided Congress, which you say stocks light, presumably it's also negative for the US dollar, because if there's going to be less of this deficit spending, that's going to put less uh, upward pressure on the dollar. 
It could actually work in the opposite, because if ultimately there's more constraints around a large S on the fiscal side, then the supply of new fixed income instruments denominated in dollars may actually be tighter, and by extension, dollar supply becomes tighter. Mm. But on the flip side as well, and if you see at the same time China uh, giving indications that it is indeed thinking about a shift in policy stance on COVID, then that's risk positive. And, and in general, when risk sentiment improves, people move away from dollar-denominated assets as a safe haven. Okay, well, a lot to think about there. Thank you both very much uh, for that. You heard Mark Franklin, who's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management, and also Nick Marrow, Lead for Global Trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets uh, for this morning. In Australia, first of all, the SX200 right now is up about one third of a percent. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is moving further ahead. It's up about uh, 1.4% right now. Cosby in South Korea, also up a third of a percent. Here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 40 or 50 points lower in an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Do please join me then. Back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy and a few showers. Bright periods during the day. Uh, the maximum temperature going to be about 24 degrees and then warm during the day with gradually improving weather in the next few days. Temperature right now is 22 degrees and it's 86% relative humidity. And the time is 8.31. Here's Todd Harding with the Half Hour News. Developing countries have urged richer nations to provide financial support to combat the effects of climate change on the first day of the COP27 summit in Egypt. Small island countries have called for a mechanism for immediate funding following a climate-related disaster. The BBC's Matt McGrath reports. After 30 years of pleading the case, all countries have finally accepted at this meeting that a formal discussion needs to be had on a financial fund for loss and damage. Germany has proposed a global insurance-based system. Small island states want a new long-term fund operated by the UN that would release money immediately after a disaster. Big questions remain. Would scientists have to investigate a storm or flood and decide how much of it was down to historic emissions of carbon? What value would you place on the beaches of a country like Jamaica or the cultural loss of ice for Arctic peoples? A final day of campaigning has been taking place in the United States ahead of midterm elections that will decide the future of President Biden's legislative agenda. Republicans are hoping to take control of both houses of Congress. Here's the BBC's Robin Brandt. Tomorrow's elections will be crucial for the second half of the Biden administration, a possible Trump presidential revival, and maybe the US commitment to continue defending Ukraine. The world's richest man believes Americans should vote Republican. Fresh from buying Twitter, Elon Musk used his social media platform to advocate for power sharing. The Tesla founder addressed what he called independent-minded voters. He said he recommended voting for a Republican Congress, given that the the presidency is democratic. And the U.S. Justice Department has revealed that it seized more than three billion U.S. dollars worth of Bitcoin last year that had been stolen from an illegal drugs marketplace. The cryptocurrency hoard was found on various electronic devices in the Georgia home of a hacker. 
James Jong pleaded guilty on Friday to stealing the funds a decade ago from the dark website Silk Road. He faces up to 20 years in jail. At the time, it was the biggest cryptocurrency seizure by the authorities in US history. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the United Nations Climate Summit, which began on Sunday in Egypt. For the next two weeks, more than 120 global leaders are gathering for the COP27 with the aim of making progress on climate action. Although the meeting is taking place amid a number of global crises and fears of a worldwide recession. According to the latest UN report, the past eight years have been the warmest on record and the average global temperature has already climbed by 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. After 9.15, we'll look at the reopening of uh, Hong Kong's uh, Sikh temple after a $230 million renovation. Let us know what you think. Join the conversation. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And our guests for the main part of our topic this morning... Uh, we have with us in our studio here Chong Chan Yao, who's a co-founder and CEO of Carbon Care InnoLab and a member of the board of uh, directors of Climate Finance Asia. 